from Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart and other members of law enforcement say whether it's extended magazines or assault weapons, the amount of firepower officers see on the streets increases dramatically every year. Knowing full well that the cars were approaching, the houses were entering, have some of the most lethal weapons you've ever seen. There is no sane person who's going to sit there and say, in our society, we should have these. Gun owners are tired of being blamed for every madman, every criminal, and every other depraved act that 2.5 million gun owners didn't do. And we're not here to negotiate. That's Todd Vandermeid, a longtime gun rights lobbyist, and before that, the Cook County Sheriff, Tom Dart. This year may be winding down, but a couple of key developments took place this week. Lawmakers held their last of three hearings they planned here in 2022 on proposed legislation that would ban so-called assault weapons. They could vote on it soon. And also the Safety Act and changes such as the elimination of cash bail. Those were in court this week. We will discuss what's happening with that and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and with us we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And joining us today we have Peter Hancock with Capital News Illinois. And Peter, it's always good to have you back with us. Well, it's good to be here, Sean. And Peter, let's uh, go to you because you were the one that covered this hearing on guns that took place. I mentioned it was the third one uh, of three that had been scheduled. And I guess more of the same we've heard from people who, uh, you know, on a little bit on both sides, certainly, as we did at the start of the show. Uh, for people that haven't been following along, this legislation that's been proposed, what would it actually do? Well, it has a long list of weapons, uh, both rifles and handguns, that it would define as assault weapons. Uh, it would prohibit the sale of assault weapons in Illinois, and then 300 days after the effective date, uh, it would prohibit the possession of assault weapons, as well as large capacity magazines. Um, and this was in response to the tragedy on 4th of July, uh, the mass shooting at the 4th of July parade in Highland Park, uh, where the alleged gunman used one of these uh, high-powered assault rifles, uh, killed seven people, injured dozens more. Um, and so there there has been a lot of pressure uh, on the state, and the governor has gotten behind the idea uh, that these weapons are just too big, too lethal, too powerful, uh, more powerful than weapons law enforcement officers carry. Uh, and they just want to put an end to it. The gun rights people, as you heard, uh, say, you know, legal gun owners, uh, law-abiding gun owners, we're not the ones doing this. Uh, and there were even some interesting arguments that, uh, you know, there are deeper underlying cultural factors that contribute to this environment of violence uh, that we're in, uh, you know, the loss of industrial jobs, uh, you know, low quality education in some areas. And so it's going to be an interesting argument. I I mean, it looks like this has the legs to get through the legislature during the upcoming 
uh, lame duck session. But it is, uh, you know, it will be challenged in court. And we heard several people during that hearing say, we'll see you in court because uh, the current U.S. Supreme Court has not looked kindly on uh, almost any kind of gun control. Well, Charlie, uh, it was mentioned that Peter pointed out that this really uh, has picked up steam after the July 4th mass shooting in Highland Park. Uh, there might be people out there that are wondering, hey, why, you know, if this was so important, why didn't they have a special session? Why didn't they deal with this in the fall session? Why put it off? But there are some strategic reasons for doing that when it comes to the legislature. Maybe you could fill us in on those. Yeah, well, I I would think that the, the most overwhelming reason why they didn't actually bring it to a vote in the fall was because the way the Constitution sets up legislative process, it says any bill that you pass between January 1st and May 31st, you can pass with a simple majority in each chamber, 60 in the House, 30 in the Senate, and it can take effect the instant the governor signs it. However, if you wait and do something on June 1st to December 31st, and you want it to take effect immediately, it requires an extraordinary majority. It requires 71 in the House, 36 in the Senate. And if you don't, if you pass it with a simple majority, it's still passed, but it does not take effect until the following June 1st. So this is probably going to pass. And part of it is the, the outrage of various mass shootings, and particularly in Highland Park, as Peter said, on the 4th of July. But my guess is it's despite the fact that Democrats have overwhelming majorities in both chambers, it's going to be pretty close to 60 and 30 because there are some Democrats who are going to want to not be recorded as being for this measure. And it used to be back in the days when I covered, there were a lot of downstate Democrats, particularly from Southern Illinois, who are very much Second Amendment folks and sponsored legislation to provide greater protection to gun owners. Most of those people have gone away as the demographics in Southern Illinois, and basically outside Chicago have changed where there's, there's been a lot of loss of blue collar jobs, mining jobs, manufacturing jobs, which tended to be democratic. And so now there are very few Democrats elected outside the city of Chicago, except in big urban areas like Champaign or, or Springfield. And so the Democrats, won't be, what would you say, they won't be imperiling themselves voting for this legislation, but they're not going to put extra people on because this is not the kind of thing that is, what would you say, all that popular elsewhere. And as Todd Vandermine said, it's going to be challenged in court no matter what. And it was interesting because as the current head of the uh, Rifle Association, a guy named Ed Sullivan, a former state rep, and he's their lobbyist now, he suggested in the hearing that this proposal will keep alive systemic racism, as he said. And he said, and he couldn't hear, he said, I can take my firearms, my mags, I can go across the border, I have the means. What about the people that don't? You're just going to criminalize them? There's over 70 counties in Illinois that are Second Amendment sanctuary counties. Those folks aren't going to get arrested. So who do you think is going to get charged with a class two felony? The idea being that it's going to disproportionately affect black and brown people 
in the Chicago neighborhoods. Well, it's interesting. And I've got a lot of people that I know, friends of mine, who uh, primarily have guns for hunting, maybe for sport in some ways as well, to uh, target practice, things like that. And, of course, there are people out there who have it for public safety or personal safety, I should say. And, Peter, you know, these types of weapons, in some cases, I think what happens in these types of uh, hearings often is, you know, the focus really is on these large capacity magazines and these semi-automatic weapons. We're not talking uh, quite often about the guy with his rifle that, or shotgun wants to go out and do some some hunting, but it all gets lumped into that. Uh, Todd Vanderbilt, I thought, had a very, that was a very interesting uh, comment that he made during this time, uh, during the hearing, when he mentioned that gun owners are tired of being blamed. That seems to resonate with a lot of the people I know. I don't know if you heard more of that during the hearings. Uh, there was some of that. Um, it, it, basically, their argument is we're not the ones who are committing these mass shootings. Uh, the mass shootings are caused by other factors in society. And so you shouldn't criminalize us because you can't think of some other way uh, to solve the underlying, uh, the root causes of violence. Um, and so, it, you know, and as Charlie was saying, there are some Democrats, even in urban areas, uh, who think that, you know, there are guns on the street. My constituents ought to have a right to defend themselves uh, to keep, keep themselves safe. And I remember I interviewed uh, House Speaker Emmanuel Chris Welch uh, a few months ago, uh, and he was saying, you know, whatever they do with assault weapons, they want it to have an immediate effect, and they just weren't sure they could get 71 votes. Uh, so this could be close. Charlie, is the is there a middle ground here? I mean, I, you just laid out the fact that uh, a lot of these Republicans represent areas where gun rights is a key issue. They're not going to want to bend on this. Is there some way, though, do you see that to uh, to work something out here where both sides could be OK with it? Man, I, I don't really see any any common ground that would that would really solve the immediate problem. One of the things that some of the people who support this particular legislation, the, the ban on, on assault weapons, they, they agree that we need to do more, as Peter said, in sort of the social services area, in education and in more community services. And that requires money, a lot of an investment, and the money's not there, and it requires time. It's not something that'll happen overnight. Whereas... The, the argument would be, well, we, we agree that we need to provide these kinds of human resources in the communities that are plagued by gun violence. But on the other hand, while we wait to do that, uh, people are being killed every day. And maybe we can stop that happening by banning assault weapons. And so I don't think there's any particular common ground that in terms of well you can you could ban this one but not that one because the second amendment folks are pretty absolute and one portion of this of this proposed legislation would make it more difficult for teenagers to get access to these weapons and that was also opposed by the uh, advocates for second amendment rights pointing that out that if you 
uh, ban 18 to 20 year olds from getting the FOIA, the firearm owner's identification card, that also violates the Second Amendment because these young people are old enough to to get married, to sign contracts, to go to uh, serve in the military. Why should they be deprived of this particular right? Let me clarify something. Peter, if you can fill us in on this, what happens to somebody who has one of these weapons now, or let's say somebody's 19 years old, they've got a FOID card, they've been maybe trained to use the gun, they've been using it for a while. Uh, what happens to those people if this passes? Well, um, I think people who own uh, these types of weapons would be allowed to keep them. Uh, they would have to be registered with the Illinois State Police, and there would be limits on uh, who you can sell it to, uh, who you could transfer it to. Um, so basically, it would just kind of put a cap uh, on <clears throat> the number of these weapons that are in circulation. Uh, as far as the uh, the FOID cards go, and I didn't mention that, it uh, right now, you can get a FOID card if you're 18 years old and uh, your parent uh, consents to it. And that's how the alleged gunman up in Highland Park uh, evidently got his initial FOID card. Would take that, remove that language. So it would just be a hard age 21 uh, to get a FOID card. And even, even mentions uh, people under the age of 21 who are out hunting would have to be under the supervision of someone over 21 with a valid FOID card. And that is... You know, that's likely uh, to cause a lot of angst, uh, especially among downstate legislators and people who live in rural areas. Uh, there are a lot of details uh, to this bill that are still subject to negotiation. Uh, Representative Justin Slaughter, who chaired the committee, uh, said there are going to be more hearings when they get back to Springfield in January. Uh, so the bill we're looking at right now is not going to be the final version. So, uh, you know, as far as what happens to people, like if you're 19 now and you have a FOID card, uh, I don't think they've addressed that. I think that's one of the details they're going to have to work on before this bill is in final form. This bill would also ban what are so-called switches. And apparently these are devices you can attach to any regular gun and make it an automatic weapon. It can fire, according to Sheriff Tom Dart, 20 shots in about a second. Well, it looks like we could see legislation uh, come up for a vote, maybe in the what's called lame duck session early in January. We'll continue to follow that as the new year begins. And right now you're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Peter Hancock with Capital News Illinois. Well, Charlie, a court hearing was held this week in Kankakee County. Lawsuits have been filed in dozens of counties against the so-called Safety Act. It does a lot of things, criminal justice changes. But one of the big ones and the one that's gotten the most attention is the ending of cash bail starting on January 1st. Well, these lawsuits, all of them have been combined, and this suit is being heard now in Kankakee County. But no matter what, you're expecting this is going to, again, uh, face uh, uh, the legal challenge is going to continue on probably up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I think that's most likely. And as you said, the the, the case now, it's consolidated of oh, dozens of suits filed all around the, the state by various sheriffs 
and county state's attorneys. And the presiding judge is Chief Judge Thomas Cunnington, who said that he hopes to hand down an opinion by December 28th, which would be, what, early next week. And depending on, well, whatever his opinion is, it's going to be appealed and ultimately it will come before the Supreme Court. Now, one of the arguments that's made against it is that the procedure the General Assembly used to put together this massive bill of which the, the most controversial portion is the pretrial release provision that does away with cash bail. The law itself is 700 some pages long. And one of the arguments is that, well, the legislature didn't read it on three separate days as the constitution requires. Well, as we all know from having covered the legislature, a bill may be introduced and it doesn't do anything at all. It could be a bill that changes one word and legislation like this will move through the process and at some point it'll be amended to really mean something and then it goes on to pass. But it does get its three readings in each chamber and it's reading by title, not by totality. And the title of this particular legislation was an act in relation to criminal justice. And so the argument that it didn't get read three times, I don't think that's going to wash. It was also attacked because the bill itself contained multiple provisions. And there's a constitutional provision says that, that bills should be limited to a single subject. And again, the, the history is that uh, the courts try to uphold the laws as much as they can. And whenever there's a, a law that covers a, a broad area, and for example, one of the bills that uh, was upheld, uh, gosh, it was like 20 years ago, it made a number of changes to various areas of the law and it was upheld because the court accepted the legislature's reasoning. All of the topics addressed criminal law and corrections, which is pretty much identical to this. So I'm thinking the, the argument that this wasn't done constitutionally, that's probably not going to fly. But some of the other provisions, uh, they could be challenged. I don't think that the court is going to throw out the entire law, the entire safety act. The court may say this particular portion, the uh, pretrial release, that maybe violates the Constitution or that maybe has problems. But the, the entire bill, and it was 764 pages, includes that it's very, I think it's this next to last paragraph, a severability clause. And what that means in essence is that if any, if a judge finds a problem with any one of these provisions in the previous 763 pages, that's okay, the rest of it can stand. So it's quite conceivable that the, the judge could let the portions that are already in effect, things like body cameras for policemen, things like that, that can stand. And it's just gonna be this pretrial release that gets challenged. And the bottom line is the, ultimately the Illinois Supreme Court will say, yes, you still can impose cash bail in the eyes of the people who are advocating for this change, you can let rich people buy their way out of jail, whereas poor people have to sit and wait for months. I want to save a few minutes here at the end. There was a report that came out from the Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability. This is the legislature's fiscal arm. 
uh, put out a report on public pensions. Always an interesting topic. And I should mention as well that Charlie is a retiree and I'm also a member of the State University's retirement system. But Peter, you are not. So fill us in on this report. What, uh, what is it, uh, what's the takeaway from it? Well, they had a very bad investment year uh, last year. And anybody who owns a 401k uh, can probably sympathize with that. Uh, so the total unfunded liability among all five pension funds is now tops. It's just under $140 billion, which is really a staggering amount of money. Uh, and the report notes that uh, the state of Illinois is not putting in enough money uh, to cover even the liabilities that they incur in the present year. And so unless you have an extraordinary investment year like they did in 2021, uh, it's going to, uh, it's the unfunded liability is going to continue to grow until we reach the point where we're actually funding the actuarial amount uh, that's needed. And I'm not sure when that happens. Uh, there was a law passed in the 1990s, uh, often referred to as the Edgar Ramp. Uh, Governor Jim Edgar proposed this and it said, each year, they will gradually increase uh, the amount of money that goes into the pension funds until all of the funds are 90% uh, funded. Uh, right now, the funding ratio is less than 50%. I think it's 40-some-odd uh, percent. Uh, and that's a big part of why Illinois has such a low credit rating, uh, is because we have this massive amount of pension debt. Uh, hanging over our heads. Uh, so this was a little bit alarming. Uh, the important thing to note, though, I mean, when they talk about unfunded liabilities, what they mean is if you just shut the system down right now and took the money that's in there to pay out the liabilities that you've already accrued, uh, we would have less than half the amount that's needed. Of course, that's not ever going to happen. Um so on you know on a month to month and year to year basis all of the funds are paying out the benefits that they owe uh nobody has been shortchanged and you know hopefully with some uh increased contributions from the state better stock market year uh for the next few years uh we might see that number start to come down and think about it for example if you go and buy a house most people don't pay cash up front for the house. They take out a mortgage. So for 20 years, 30 years, they say, this is my house, but I own it along with the bank. And they don't sit down and figure out their budget and say, oh my God, I'm really in the red because I still owe on my mortgage. I still owe 20, 30, $40,000, but that's not due for another 20 years as long as I make my monthly payments. So the Edgar Ramp was conceived with the idea of getting the funds at 90% of the amount of money they would need if they went out of business at the moment. And it included a formula that the actuaries use to figure out how much has to go into it each year from the state so that by so that 50 years from its initiation, we'll be at the 90%. And the state has not put in its share as the employer never put in the full amount of money needed to cover the cost of the benefits earned in a given year 
going back more than 100 years. So like from day one, we've never funded it adequately. And it's kind of interesting because for the first time, I think ever, the legislature and the governor this time around threw extra money into the fund above what was required under the statute. So as a result, even though the debt grew to roughly $140 billion, the actual difference between what's going in in the current fiscal year is something like $4 billion less than what would be needed to cover the full amount of the benefits being earned plus a reasonable payoff period for the unfunded liability going back decades. And interestingly enough, because the extra money was put in by the governor and the legislature this time around, the actual appropriation that's going to be required in FY24, the fiscal year that starts next July 1st, it's actually going to be $38 million less than what was put in this year. Time now for our notes from the field. And Peter, let's go to you first. Well, there was an interesting bill that was dropped into the hopper during the fall veto session that hasn't come up yet, uh, but it could come up in the lame duck session, uh, having to do with public access to rivers and streams. Uh, Under current Illinois law, you can only get in a boat and canoe or uh, paddle on streams that are considered navigable, which is defined as capable of carrying commercial traffic. Uh, So basically, it's the big rivers that are capable of carrying barge traffic and a few others. This bill would change that definition uh, so it would be considered navigable and you would have public access if it's capable of carrying commercial or recreational traffic. And this kind of flows out of an Illinois Supreme Court decision from several months ago. Uh, There was a property dispute to property owners along the Mazan River. Uh, the Supreme Court said, yes, this property owner can cut off public access to the portion of the river that runs across his property because that's the way the law reads right now. Uh, It's a very antiquated law and really in conflict with what you would see in most of the Western states where rivers and streams are considered public property. Uh, And so two justices wrote what's called a special concurring opinion. They said, yes, we agree with how uh, this came out. We have no choice because that's the law right now. But hey, legislature, you really ought to think about changing the law. Rivers and streams ought to be considered public assets and the public ought to have more right to them. You know, this is going to cause a lot of angst for farmers who uh, might be worried that people are going to not only paddle up and down the river, but maybe pull over and trespass on their property. These are very interesting debates. And I just, I will be very, very anxious if and when uh, this comes up for debate to see how it turns out. Okay. And Charlie. Well, in an interesting coincidence, uh, Governor Pritzker signed this past Wednesday legislation that would, in essence, stop the Illinois pension systems making them divest any investments they might have in any assets that might be tied to Russia or Belarus. And that's in retaliation for President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And would also say that state colleges and universities would have to disclose any endowments provided by Russian companies. And the timing was very interesting because this kind of 
wide sweeping legislation, which passed the General Assembly this past spring, I guess they finished it up in the fall, without a single dissenting vote in either chamber. It was signed by the governor on the very same day that Ukrainian President Zelensky met with President Joe Biden and addressed a joint session of the Congress and received a standing ovation from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle in both chambers. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Peter Hancock with Capital News Illinois. Get a podcast of our show at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. You can just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.